Hello, and welcome back to the Legends Podcast with me, Sarah Faruya of SF Creative and Sarah Faruya Coaching, where I am rising like a phoenix from the ashes after a one-year break to season seven, where our theme is legends of reinvention, stories of renaissance, and the phoenix rising from the fire. I believe there are many ways to lead a life and everybody has stories. So let's get into these creative musings from Sarah and her guests. Enjoy. Hello, everyone, and welcome, welcome, welcome to this, the season seven of the Legends podcast. And here we are rising like phoenixes from the fire. We're talking about reinvention and renaissance, and I'm so happy to have you here. And today I have an amazing person with me who I've only just recently met, yesterday in fact, and I decided to follow the magic. And part of that magic is the magic of social media because we met each other on Instagram and we've been following each other. So we had kind of bits and pieces of knowledge about one another. So I'd like to welcome Brittany Arthur. Hi, Brittany. Hello, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me. It's so true what you say, especially like if you've connected like on Instagram. I'm like, I know Sarah goes for walks on the beach to at Zushi, but it's inappropriate to say that I know that. <laughs> <laughs> say what? Oh, you can say what you like. I'm an open book, obviously, and I'm aware that people watch social media. And that's something that I'm um, interestingly, just as a side note, Brittany, is like social media gets a really bad rap. And and I will hold that that true right I will Mm. hold that true that there's a there's ethical issues there's addiction issues it's Mm -hmm. designed like that we all know that I spend an inordinate amount of time on it but it's also quite magical we could probably have met each other anyway because we're in a similar industry and we have a lot of the same connections being foreigners in Japan but there's also just this magic with Instagram like you know things about me but until you meet me you don't know what you don't know right so it's it's absolutely brilliant and I'd made an awful lot of assumptions about you as well I thought you were American I thought x y and z I thought I didn't you know it's just so interesting how to connect with people and then find out more about them so let's find more about you Brittany so Brittany Arthur is the CEO of Design Thinking Japan a human-centered design consultancy with studios in Tokyo and Sydney she leads the organization in fostering innovation and enhancing customer value through design As the founder of the world's only bilingual Japanese and English innovation podcast and design thinking network, Brittany actively contributes to her field as a speaker and media commentator. In addition to her professional achievements, Brittany is a mother to Charles and has been actively involved in Rotary International for nearly two decades, demonstrating her dedication to community service. And we're all about community service here at SFC. What's the name of your podcast, by the way? It's called the Business Karaoke Podcast. Business Karaoke. Business Karaoke Podcast. Beautiful. And perhaps we'll get into talking about that a bit bit later. Actually, no, let me ask you about that right now. What's the kind of ethos behind your podcast? What's your raison d'etre? So the, the idea why it comes from karaoke in the first place is because karaoke is that place where you kind of put things aside a little bit. You can grab a mic. Everybody has like a different role. Some people sing, some people order the drink, some people are there with the tambourine. Everyone can kind of get along. You get out of the building, you do things different. And the other thing that's really important is for it, it's for a specific time. You don't go to karaoke with like an unend, you know, in mind. Everyone knows it's for an hour or two and you're done and you move on. 
And I think that's also really important when you lean into these kinds of innovation or, or new conversations that whether it's someone's pioneering something, it's kind of heavy in a good way. And if you just, you know, and you, but you can't do it all day, you can't listen to all this all day, you know, it's a bit too heavy. So what you want is you want something like for about an hour, you can, you know, listen, you can feel yourself transformed, you can connect to someone, and then you can kind of, you know, refresh and, and grow from that. So business karaoke is for people that are usually global leaders, professionals that are just doing something different in their business here in Japan. Oh, I'm so glad I asked that. What a brilliant description of karaoke as well and how we can use that in the in the rest of our lives. Just love the idea. It's like, you wouldn't want to listen to it all day. Yeah, damn straight. You don't want to listen to somebody singing Guns N' Roses out of tune all day. <laughs> and by somebody, I mean me. Yeah, but like, you know, just a, a short, you know, a condensed period. I mean, why not? Everyone's good. And you get to blow it off steam and you get to do all these things and then... Then you just go back to real life and nobody's trying to be a singer and nobody's doing it as their profession. Brilliant. What an absolutely fantastic description. I'm taking that metaphor and rolling it over in my mind. So my first question then, Brittany, is tell me a story of reinvention that you've either admired or has had an influence on you. There's so many things that come to mind, whether it's something like, particularly when it comes to like Japanese organizations, you know, originally how Honda sold a bike and now they do cars or whether it was, you know, originally, I forgot which other brand, you know, began with pencils and then move into automotive. There's so many things where people have started with something and ended up completely somewhere Probably different. Probably Mitsubishi. I'm yeah, I think, Mitsubishi. Well, yeah, I think it was Mitsubishi. Yeah. Mm. So I love all of those stories, but I don't know them deeply. The only story I really know is my own. And I know that there are two kinds of reinventions, I guess, that I've gone through my life. One has been where I have been complicit where I have decided, yes, I'm going to go and do this thing. The, my reinvention was dragging me, kicking, screaming. And I was absolutely against it every step of the way until I eventually had to, to cave into it. Go ahead. So one of which I remember, one was like when I was quite young, I had my whole life studied Japanese, been obsessed with people and business. And I wanted my entire life to be built around Japan and working in Japan. And I did everything that you're supposed to do. You know, I did like a double degree at university in Japanese and business. I got internships at the Australian Trade Commission. I worked at multinationals in Tokyo. And then in 2011, there was the Tohoku earthquake, which I'm sure many of the, your listeners probably yeah, were here yeah. for. I was in Roppongi Ichome on the 19th floor and it was incredible. I've never, ever felt such an earthquake like that in my life. And at that point, I had actually had a scholarship from the Rotary Foundation to continue my studies. And immediately at that point, they essentially said, we don't know what the situation is in Japan, because as, as we know, there was such a, a devastating aftermath with Fukushima and the, just the, a lot of the unknowns around that. Sorry, can I just interrupt here? Fukushima, for anybody who doesn't know, can you explain that? Oh, of course. We had the largest earthquake in Japan's modern history. And the thing that was most devastating about that earthquake, obviously it was the shock of the earthquake, but after that came a tsunami. And the tsunami essentially obliterated a nuclear power plant in Fukushima. And there was a lot of questions around the management of the nuclear waste after that tsunami. So there was nuclear waste potentially in the air and everybody had to evacuate. But even for those people who were living in the rest of Japan, and outside, we didn't know what was happening at that time, right? So exactly. So in that case, somebody like the Rotary, I'm assuming, would not be able to 
ethically say, yes, you can stay and we'll keep funding you. They're like, yeah, I think we need, you need to get out because we can't guarantee your safety. Got it. You need to get out. And the, for me, this was like, what do you mean get out? Everything that I'd ever done in, in my life. And, and to be honest, I'd only ever known how to be even an adult in Japan. I'd never paid a bill in Australia, Sarah. I'm originally Australian. I never even paid a bill. I didn't do any kind of like adulty contracty things. I didn't know. Everything I knew was here. And, you know, back in, you know, 2011, things are different now, but you used to have to go to the 7-Eleven and pay my bills and all that kind of stuff. When they said, you know, off you go, you have to choose somewhere else. And for me, it was so horrible because I thought if it's not Japan, I don't care. I don't care where I go because I only cared about being here. I said, you have to go somewhere else. Long story short, kind of, you know, it was quite funny at the time. Um, I was working for this huge multinational on, on the facade. It looked like very lucrative what I was doing and you know, for this huge, you know, global brand and the super cool offices and everything like that. But really, I had really not a lot to do during the day. And my boss, you know, was a very traditional Japanese man. And he kind of had this very bizarre, almost agreement that as long as I looked busy, so nobody else would be, you know, looking at him. As long as I looked busy, I essentially had free reign. I could essentially do what I wanted. So I did whatever he needed me to do right up in the morning. And then in the afternoons, I just used it to study and things like that. And I came across this thing called design thinking, which was essentially a problem solving methodology that just was so interesting to me. It was all about defining the problem before coming up with a solution. And I thought, don't we always do that? Isn't that how we should always do it? <laughs> And it's not how we work. Then I kind of said, okay, well, I'll have a look. Where can I maybe study this? If I can't be in Japan, I have to go somewhere else. Where am I going to go? And I did want to go to an English-speaking country. For me, I was just like, meh, if I'm going to go somewhere that's not my dream, I may as well learn a language or do something like a little bit interesting or a little bit different. And the humans or the, the D school, as it's called, so the place where you can study human-centered design, there was one in Berlin. And I thought, well, I'll just go there. <laughs> and I, Sarah, had never in my life been to Europe, nor Germany, nor Berlin, until I had gotten off a plane knowing that I had to live there. I like, had never been there. <laughs> and I went on a whim. Now, when I got there, I had this absolute crunch. I thought, my goodness, on the surface, this is what I've done before. I've moved to a country and I've kind of been able to build my life. That's what I did in Japan. But here, I can't do it. What's missing? Why am I, you know, I also arrived during the winter and the Berlin winter is probably as enjoyable as like probably the winter in the UK. I, you know, it's gray. It is, it, there's not a lot of light. It's just not very enjoyable. And I, I had to kind of essentially look at why I was able to do it in one country and not another. And I kind of recognized that the thing that was different between my life in Germany versus my life in Japan was that my life in Japan had some kind of purpose. I gave meaning to it. I had community. I was connected to people. And in Berlin, I wasn't. And, you know, that kind of living is giving. And I thought, my goodness, there's, I, I have to find a way to somehow be useful to this community. In order for me to feel like I'm in a community, I have to give something. And so that was when, you know, again, being involved in Rotary and in, in a service organization, I joined one of the youth chapters in Berlin and I started, you know, of course I was studying and that gives you one purpose and, you know, friends and things like that. But for me, it's never quite enough. If I'm not like really in the service of something or somebody, it's just not enough if I'm just studying and improving myself. I really feel like I need to do something for someone else. And I was 
in Rotaract and, you know, we were working with them like over quite a few years, but, you know, uh, you know, in a children's home, children who, uh, you know, had been abandoned by their parents. And then later on, you know, at, um, you know, as, as the years went, went by, obviously the children also from Syria that came over after the war and things like that. And it was really there that I really felt like, okay, this is where I can find myself. I find myself in the service of others. That's what I've found about me the more that I can be in the service of others, the more that I find myself. I'm not someone that can kind of, you know, sit down in a room and like kind of, you know, write it out or like read a book and kind of get clear. I really, that's for me how I find myself. You need to be doing it through service. That's really interesting. And I I really love that you had to, you were forced into this reinvention. So there's a couple of things in here. The number one is I'm really reminded of a career strategy seminar that I attended about 15 years ago. The stories that the women in that, it was a one for, for empowering women, few. And the women in that, a couple of the speakers were talking about working in Japanese companies and how they were literally just given 10 years prior, so that's 25 years ago from now, just recruited and given a desk. And that was it. That was it. We don't know this. We talked a little bit about this yesterday. You don't know what you don't know. You need these kind of mentors and stuff to tell you these things because it's a sink or swim kind of thing now. There's an assumption about Japanese culture, I think, that people are like, everything's got rules and you've got to follow them and everybody's telling you what to do all the time and you follow, but that's actually not the case. There's rules, but within those rules, you are expected to find your own way through them. And and this is constantly revealing itself to me as well, even though I've been here for 23 years, listening to you talking about that sparked that memory. You're not put on a training program straight away, or very often you are, like if you're a new graduate or something like that, but you are expected. It's a sink or swim kind of thing, almost, almost. And that's exactly what your boss did to you. Yes. It's like the ganbaru. ganbaru. What does that mean? Yeah, ganbaru or ganma makes no sense. It just means like, just get on with it. Yeah, get on with it. Get on with it. Endure. Tolerate what this is. Do your best. Find a way through it. It means an awful lot of things, right? Gambaru and Gaman. Wow. And you did. I did, exactly. And then, you know, I had another transition. Of course, the transitions when I came back to Japan, for me, they were the ones that I chose, right? They're the ones that I love, that, you know, they're the ones. But I have to say, in terms of the transitions or the reinventions, for me, were definitely the reinventions that I didn't choose were where I really grew. And I found another reinvention in my life was after COVID. So after I'd studied human-centered design in Japan, I had an opportunity to come back to Japan and bring human-centered design to Japan. So I didn't bring it as kind of like this new, like Silicon Valley problem-solving methodology. It's totally new. Let me introduce it to you. A lot of it had a lot to do with traditional Japanese management principles. Absolutely. Then imported back to America and then imported back to... And to and exactly, and then imported back in. And so what I tried to do and kind of where I felt like that I could be of service was I could bring this methodology, but layer it in a way that it's not new flashy thing. It's actually a regression to the traditional Japanese business model, which if we look at it, the companies kind of, if we look at that kind of, you know, Japanese Renaissance area, era of like the Mitsubishis, the Hondas, the Toyotas, like the 1890. 1910 kind of period, had some incredible growth, had incredible entrepreneurs, particularly also multidisciplinary entrepreneurs. It also was a period during the major period where people would say, you know what, just get on a boat, head to America, have a look what you find out and come back and, you know, let us know. It was kind of in the 
early 2000s, late 90s, early 2000s that, you know, we've noticed that Japanese innovation has kind of trickled off a little bit. But originally, those original Japanese companies, they're the ones that have really sparked things that we still use today. Um, And so what I really wanted to do was bring it back and say, hey, maybe the innovation thing, we don't just copy and paste. Maybe it's actually a regression to where we have come from. And I felt like I was someone to speak to that because I could see both sides. You know, I speak Japanese. I knew the methodology and I thought that I would be someone to lead that. I had a great couple of years, 2017, 18, 19, trained lots of people. I had women leave the seminar sometimes almost in tears thanking me that they felt more confident than ever that they could go and speak to their boss now in a way because they had a toolkit. I want you to think about like the human-centered design process almost as your compass. Have you ever been in a moment, Sarah, where you're out and about in Tokyo and your phone dies? You have no battery and you have to arrive somewhere or you're out and about somewhere and, you, and your phone dies and you go, bloody hell, how am I going to get there? You start getting nervous because you don't have a map. But when you have a map and your phone's charged, you feel like you can go anywhere, right? And that's how I feel like in the innovation space. If you have a compass, you feel confident. If you don't have that compass, compass whether it's a, a process, whether it's a coach, whatever it is, you feel nervous, right? And so I loved that I was working with these people who they didn't leave the seminar feeling good about me. They left about feeling good about themselves. And I was like, this is what I love, that you feel good about you, you know, not like, oh, gee, Brittany, she knows design thinking really well. They left thinking, you know what? Bloody hell, I think I can use this. That's what I loved. So that had a couple of great years. We went back to Mexico at the beginning of 2020, February 2020. My husband was running the first holographic surgery in Latin America. His team had built the software behind it. We went back for that on a four-week holiday, Sarah. (gasps) And then COVID happened. Yeah. February 2020 is like a word of like great grief. You know what's coming next. Yeah, amazing. And I found myself right bang smack in a position like I was in Germany, as in I've come off these couple of years in Japan where I knew I felt like I was doing what I should be doing. And then I was in a country where I didn't speak the language, which, you know, again, happened again in Germany. And But this time I was so thankful because I was able to catch it. I was like, I've had this before. I knew this. I knew this feeling of not being, you know, in a country where you didn't speak the language, of not being connected, not having friends, not being in service of anyone, I can fly right off the rails. I'm someone that can totally just like spiral. And so I knew that I had that in Germany. So I recognized that. As we all know, we were all in lockdown. And I was constantly like speaking to my husband about issues in Japan. And he said to me, I am really, you know, happy that we're locked up here together. However, I really need you to like start a podcast or something. And all of these like sermons that you're giving me, please record them and like share them with somebody else. And that's how the Business Karaoke podcast started because I was in Mexico, totally disconnected from like my community in Japan, not in service of anyone. And then that's how Business Karaoke started. And because Business Karaoke became a part of other people's lives, I then felt like I got my life back. So that for me, I guess, was my, another one of my, Reinvention. That's the service piece, right? Yes. Ah, yes. Brilliant. Back to Mexico. So your husband's Mexican, right? He is. Right. When we were talking yesterday, you mentioned something about how impressed you were at how the Mexican people reinvented as well. And I really enjoyed this story so much. Can you tell me about that? If you kind of remember, 
there was a lots of emotions, lots of, you know, people went through lots of journeys, lots of moments during the pandemic. But quite early on in the pandemic, there was kind of amongst particular economies, I'd say Australia was one, Germany was another, that there was almost like an outcry, like an outrage almost around things like stimulus checks, like where's my stimulus check and I need to be, you know, the government should be doing more to support us and doing more to support small businesses. And this is very true, but what I was living on a day-to-day basis was I would look out my window and you would see people who were living day-to-day pre-COVID, right, obviously. And let's say that they used to run a taco store. So it's like a taco stand on the street, like street food. Like a taco stand, like a taco, exactly, like a food vendor. And then overnight, they had a choice. Either I would not make any money today and my husband, um, you know, my family would die of hunger or they're going to die of COVID and nobody wants to die of hunger. So everyone went to work. They had to do something. So they went out and you would see these, honestly, these food vendor trucks now with handmade signs plucked over the top saying, you know, car disinfectant. And they were able to just really just turn and innovate and and reinvent on a dime because they had no other choice. And I started kind of seeing this parallel between cultures or economies or societies that let's say had a really strong social infrastructure enabled to support people through this time. And then countries who didn't, i.e. Mexico, and you saw just how people just had to get on with it. And when, you know, we talked about get get on with it, get on with it with, with no context is totally unhelpful. But if you say get on with it, you know, what people did was, what can I do today that I can bring the same, at least the same income in to feed my family? And for me, this was really quite important because I had come off this really high couple of years of flying around the world and living this like very luxurious, like business executive life. And then it was like, boom, all over. And I was really lucky to be in Mexico at that time because I am someone that can tend to feel sorry for themselves. If someone holds that space for me, I'll fill it up. But I'm really glad that I was in Mexico because no one had any space for that. Everyone was trying to just survive. And that for me also really propelled me in a way to find, okay, well, what's my story? If this person can do innovate their business in a night, I also can innovate my business as well. You know, if this person can go from taco vendor, like a, you know, a food vendor to disinfecting your, your cars overnight, obviously I can go from in-person training to something else, you know, and what's that going to be? So for me, being in Mexico around people who are focused on moving forward, putting one foot in front of the other, for me was a really interesting place to be. I'm so happy you've brought these people into the space here because I think so often my podcast is very much about people like you and I who live in comparative luxury and just how meaningless that is at the end of the day. Not meaningless. It, I, I don't mean to be disparaging or to to put our situation down. I just mean that there's a sameness that goes on through the eons, through the eras, through the millennia, where people have to innovate and innovate and innovate over and over again. Something you said there is, oh yeah, so that sense that like the Japanese way of innovating in the 1910s was then kind of imported over to the USA. And also Japan was importing USA culture back here. That kind of cultural exchange goes on. It's it's the human condition, right? But there's no one culture. This is something that I learned through my grief podcast is every single religion has uh, structures around grief and dying and mourning and time limits and rituals around that. 
it's very similar across the board. And that's something that I look at. There's nothing unique about what, what I do there, or there's nothing unique about the next iteration of anything, really. As human beings, we have to survive through the millennia. And there's really no difference in value from one life to the next. Somebody who's selling disinfectant or somebody who's selling workshops or coaching or something like that, we're all equally valuable as one another. And our stories are too. I was really struck by that story and how you related that back to your own life too. Really struck by that. And you used the word pivot yesterday as well, that pivot, boop, boop. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. And and I think that um, sometimes we overthink it a little bit as well. And one oh, thing hello. that, you know, yeah, no, no. <laughs> one thing that we do a lot in design thinking is the, uh, the idea to prototype and test something. Because you do it once doesn't mean that you have to do it forever. And so, for example, these food vendors, you know, as kind of, you know, the restrictions lifted, they obviously went back to their core business, right? And I think this is also something to kind of look at is that we've got to look at business in seasons and say, okay, maybe, you know, I've, you know, my my core business is food, but for whatever reason, you know, there's a global pandemic, I'm now going to have to do something for a season to know that that's okay. And to give grace to yourself. Another thing that I've also kind of witnessed is when you look at, when I was doing this human-centered design training, one of the challenges that we used was um, employee experience. And without question, the deepest depths of the Japanese employment experience was when they felt alone or when they felt isolated. It wasn't when things were difficult. It wasn't when they had a really hard project. If anything, you know, the Japanese thrive in that. When I say the Japanese in, in kind of like in, in quotes, so, so do, do forgive me. There is this element of we did it together. There's almost an elation. There's this connection, this deep golden connection. The really deep dark spots are when they feel alone. And conversely, when we ran this training with, for example, let's say Western cultures, the deepest, darkest steps were when, when somebody didn't feel like that they were leaning into their strengths, when they weren't reaching their full potential. Whether they were alone or not was absolutely it was, if I'm not doing what I'm put on this planet to do, then I'm depressed, essentially. Whereas, you know, you'll have something that I, that I learned, for example, with the Japanese is what's, as long as I'm doing it with someone, it's important. And that's kind of a little bit how I felt in Mexico, that maybe I wasn't doing the work of my life, um, but I'm doing it with people. And people are, you know, also kind of, we're in this kind of together. And I think, you know, being able to reflect on that and giving yourself grace and maybe not every season of your business life is your absolute best season. And that's okay. Mm. <laughs> Where do you fall on this then? Because as I get older, I'm 52 now, I'm starting to realize how deeply important that connection is beyond anything else. And I'm not saying it's A versus B, but there's something so deeply important in the human condition about being in communion with others, about being in connection with others, about being supported by others, because this is my experience. If I have this deeply individualistic drive, then where do I lean when I'm desperate or when I'm not even desperate, when I need some help? Where does one go from there? Does that mean that my potential's not being filled? I'm really kind of toying with this at the moment. That's one thing I really like about my own journey is that I'm willing to question things and and play with things. There's been so many revelations over the last five to 10 years around all of this. For, for me personally, 
how do you make sense of this? I think it comes back down to stripping away the layers, stripping, stripping away the, am I the Japan expert? Am I the design thinking expert? Am I that? And it's more that what's driving that. And I have found as long as that I can connect to those core drivers, right? And so for me, things are, um, and I think being able to define them is really important. And maybe for some of you listening on the podcast, if you haven't done that in your life, one way that I like to do it without kind of, you know, it being too difficult is that I want you to just kind of map out some moments when you're really happy, when you're really happy and you just feel really good. It doesn't necessarily mean, you know, it doesn't always have to be relaxed or something, but when do you feel like oh, I really enjoyed that? Or I had that, that was a really great moment for me. Think about that. And I want you to write it down in as specific detail as possible. And then you'll see that these stories will start giving you a reflection or a mirror in your life. And you'll start saying, oh, look, I'm happiest when I'm working one-on-one or I'm happiest when I'm working in teams or I'm happiest when I'm working on something new or I'm happiest when I'm working on something or, or when I'm building out an idea that somebody else has come up with, for example. Just try to get a, a re- the better you can understand what it is behind the superficial manifestation of what you're actually doing, the more that you can understand what drives you, I think you can find that happiness no matter where you go, which is why whether you're coaching Sarah, whether you're in a grief circle or whether you're going for a walk along Zushi Beach, I think you can connect to that same joy, that same connection to the universe. And for me, that's also quite true. I've had to build a life in Mexico, Japan, and Germany, and they're not even similar bloody language groups. You know what I mean? You know, sometimes, oh, you know, like I, you know, Italian and I, you know, moved to Spain. I mean, there's some similarities there, you know, there's three completely different cultures. And then to add the fact that I'm even Australian, you know, on top of that as well. And I've had to build a meaningful life in all four locations. It's kind of just made me recognize that it's possible as long as that you connect to, and I would say for me, it's an what those drivers are for me are non-negotiables. They're non-negotiable. I'm not willing to negotiate them, but I will negotiate with the universe how I am able to connect with those things. And I think that's for me being where I've been able to be my best self, as in this is for me where I know I'm in best service of people is by, you know, when, when I know I'm my best when I'm in service of people. Okay, universe, I'll negotiate, however, on how I can do that. For example, that 2017 to, you know, 2020, like training period was like 2000 people training, you know, kind of lots being on stage, everyone with a microphone, you know, it was like very kind of like, you know, lots of energy. But then the universe said, okay, but the best way that you can serve your community from 2020 is you're going to have a podcast and you're going to speak about Japan from your home in Mexico. Okay. That's the negotiation. Okay. I'll take it. But you can still do it. You can still connect to that deep inner feeling that you need to connect to in order to feel you, but you've got to work with me on how I'm going to let you do that. And then I will submit to that. Yeah. Submit to your circumstances, which could also be the universe. Yeah. I'm really struck here by the, like, of course, COVID and the pandemic hit everybody very bizarrely, right? It's just, and, and ongoing, ongoing. I read a post yesterday, somebody was saying that they thought that there was going to be a mass 
burnout this year and next year as everybody tries to get back to normal but hasn't really processed what happened. And I just thought that was so, I was like, oh, yeah, that makes much Mm. sense to me personally. I was talking to you about that. But we also talked about something yesterday, which I might mention later. But I really love this idea of like, there's the universe, there's your circumstances, there's your values. And then there's the negotiation that you make. So if you, for example, if we just use service as one of your deep, deep, deep seated values, you go to Mexico for four weeks, you end up being there for however many years, three years. And you have to negotiate at that point because the pandemic comes in and there's nothing you can do about that. That's happened. That's that. So you pivot, you innovate. What you thought you were going to do wasn't there, but it's still deeply connected to your service. And you also have, unlike your people you're looking out the window at, the, the street vendors, you're also taking care of your financial bottom line because we don't talk about that enough. We don't talk about that enough. And, and that's the similarity. It's like, is my financial bottom line in a good way? Yes, then I can do this. Is it not? Then there's pivots all all up and down those things. So for listeners, especially listeners who may be on all the different scales of, of financial security and safety right now, there's ways to do this at all levels. I think at all levels, but I also don't want to underestimate the power and the empowerment that one gets from some kind of financial stability as well. We touched on that also. So Brittany, I think this is a great place to ask you about your childhood, your upbringing, where you were raised and your background. So I'm originally um, Australian. I'm a terrible Australian because people say, you don't sound Australian, but if I'm either on the phone to my mom or my brothers or my sister, it comes back <laughs> in a minute. So I'm originally Australian. I'm the eldest daughter, which I always feel is a little bit important to say. I think it's a bit different being eldest son, eldest daughter, and the eldest of four children and of uh, two, two, working, two working parents. People often, you know, speak about, oh, you know, were your parents German or did they have some kind of, you know, connection here or there? And this kind of international like life that I've led you know, my parents didn't even have a passport until very recently. We didn't travel as kids. There was no, there was nothing of that. So I can't even really say where this kind of almost audacity that I can live anywhere. Gosh, no, that came from. I think I was about 17 and I said to my mom, I'm going to study in Japan. There was like an, you know, an unsaid a rule that she would support me as much as she possibly could, but one of those ways were not financially. So as long as I was able to find my way financially, whether it was through a scholarship or something, she'd be, you know, hundred percent behind me. That was another thing. I think I had people who, whose parents would say, oh no, don't go. I'll, I'll miss you or something. And I think also people that have really strong, like friendship groups as well. I never kind of growing up, I never had like a super strong friendship group. So it wasn't so unbelievable to me to kind of leave everything behind and try something new. I've known I've known people that really had incredibly great friends during their, you know, during their kind of formative years and then never really kind of wanted to to leave that community. And I'm not saying that you should, but that, you know, it's just been that just became their life. And that wasn't really the case for me. So it was, it wasn't that difficult in a way to kind of go and try and set, you know, find something new. And, you know, I told my mom, hey, I'm I'm going to go to Japan. And she was like, oh, great good luck, you know, kind of thing. And that was kind of how, how it all started. My 
siblings yeah if you know I think about them I I kind of always laugh you know because there's four of us and I always say I don't know if my mom had four kids so she could tell the same story four times or that she could tell a di- one story different to all of us <laughs> because in order you know when you were trying to like piece things together okay what what did you hear what did you hear? and it's kind of like this puzzle piece to try to try to kind of build what really happened yeah, but I would say, you know, I grew up very close with my, very close with my siblings, but all, you know, very vastly different, vastly. Everything from like engineers. I have one brother that wears, you know, polo shirts and an engineer. And then I have another brother that's like head to toes in tattoos. And, you know, he coaches, you know, kids cricket. And then my sister's a designer, but now she works with the police. Like we're all a little bit everywhere. A little bit everywhere. What kind of reinventions happened during your childhood then? I also just wanted to say, I love that you mentioned there about how everybody turned out different because I remember somebody in the psychology world said, nobody has the same childhood. Nobody. No two siblings has the same childhood or the same parents. They're different for each person. And I think that's really an interesting thing that you've just highlighted there. But like, can you think of any reinventions that happened when you were young or something that really sticks out for you? I think it was 10. When I was 10, as I said, I was from four children before we were four children, but it's a bit different because it was six years. It was me, then three years, then three and three years. So it was like me, my parents had a break for three years. My mother decided she wanted to have more children. And then it was like one, two, three. So it was always kind of like me and what my, what we would call in our family, the little ones, right? So it was me and the little ones, but I wasn't a little one the three little ones with the little ones. I was about kind of when I was growing up because there was kind of that age gap, I would often go to my aunt and uncle's house and they would look after me. They at that time didn't have any children. And my uncle was a policeman. And one day when he was not supposed to be working, he was called in for a shift and he didn't come home. He was murdered in the line of duty. Yes, he was murdered. and. I would say for me, that was the first time, like being that kind of like 10, 11 year old, having this person. And I think it was also quite significant or symbolic, the fact that he was a policeman because he's he's the one that protects you. You know what I mean? He's the safe one, right? He's the safe one. And the fact that that kind of like mortality, he couldn't even outrun it. He couldn't even hide from mortality. And for me, he was like the strongest, most, you know, man I could ever imagine. And, you know, what do you mean that? mortality can touch him. I can't believe it. There was that period. And then a month later, my father was diagnosed with cancer. And so was my mother's mother. So it was kind of like this period of absolute chaos. And I was 10. My mother obviously had to try and keep everything together. And we had like the three little ones. And I would say for me, in terms of like childhood reinvention, that was a time where I kind of recognized that was like, okay, goodness, whatever life used to look like, it's going to have to look different now. At that time of my life, undoubtedly the most significant male figure in my life. And then to kind of then see that kind of like run on from, you know, my mother obviously being very worried. She's looking both at home. She's caring for both her husband and her mother, you know. And then, yeah, so I would say that kind of period in, of invention kind of stuck with me a lot. And I also think being a child and going through this kind of trauma in a way it matures you, but also it, it enabled me to sit in difficult conversations. There's not a lot that you can tell me that I couldn't possibly, you know, hear. You know, when you're, you know, a 10-year-old and you hear that, you know, 
essentially your father, the figure had been shot. And again, it was, and it was also like a terrible circumstance. It was, you know, he was in like one of the, you know, this, like the a special division that was particularly, you know, focused in, was like on like a drug ring in Australia. It was also like really horrible by horrible people. There was something and, you know, he, he you know, jumped in front of a, a pregnant woman to save her or something. It was a horrible circumstance. And I think because I had that when I was younger, it's kind of like, well, nothing, it's kind of almost like, oh, can't really get any worse. And so I had that kind of in my life that I wasn't really afraid of many things after that. Thank you. First of all, I'm really sorry about your uncle. Oh, thank you, Sarah. What's his name? Raj Rodney. We'll dedicate today's podcast to Rodney. Oh, thank you, Sarah. Whatever life used to look like, it's going to look different now. Y- yes. And and that's such an incredible kind of illustration of that. And that could be a day-to-day thing as well. And talking about your family and inviting your family into this now, I was so impressed by your own kind of reinvention and reimagining of how that's going to look for you and how you built your business from Mexico to here. And you've invited your mom into the conversation. So um, she's with us now as well. So I just wonder if you wouldn't mind telling us how you, it's up to you, but like, if you wouldn't mind telling us how you built out your, your family and your business and how you've done that, because it's so innovative and so, well, you told me having lived in Mexico and Japan, three generation households aren't all that, right? But from UK and Australia, maybe not not Irish households where I'm from, but like definitely English households are a lot less likely to have a three generation household. Yeah. You're 18 and off you go, right? Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think it's probably coming back a bit more now as we've kind of over the last hundred or 200 years realized, oh, hang on, (laughs) this was a good idea after all. But I'm really interested to hear about that because I just loved listening to your story and it helped me to kind of expand my own horizons. Would you mind telling us that? My husband and I welcomed our son Charles in August of 2022. And we had kind of invited both of our mothers, my mother, as well as my husband's mother to kind of be with us and help us. Now, for reasons to their own, both of them were unable to be with us. And so we kind of had been counting on a bit of support. In Mexico? Yes, in Mexico. And then it vanished. And we were like, shit, it's just the two of us. And we're going to have to work this out. So my husband and I, essentially, I would say for the first year of Charles's life, he and I did all the caring, as well as work, as well as everything. And then one day, I was looking on like my my Google photos to look for a photo. I have I'm probably was looking for a photo of Charles or something. And a photo came up with my face and it said, you know, do you recognize this person or who is this person or something? And I said, well, that's me. What do you mean? I had changed in terms of reinvented so much so that the Google AI was unable to pick up my face. Like it didn't recognize me. And I didn't recognize me either, either, to be honest. And things were just really not what we, was just unsustainable how we had been living. You know, my husband was working full time. I was also trying to, trying to work full time, but like also unsuccessfully. 
and also trying to raise our son. Now, lots of people might think, oh, you're in Mexico, probably you had loads of help. We didn't. We did not have help. We didn't have cleaning help. We didn't have daycare help. We didn't have any of that. And so we kind of had a look at ourselves and said, okay, well, what, what's life going to look like? Because we can't just keep doing this. And so we sat down and we had a look at where do we want to be? Now, one of the things that I have found with people who have the privilege of doing many things, one of their issues is that they can do anything. And so they don't know where. And so my husband and I really had to sit down and say, which country do we want to be in? And I always said, for me, I feel happiest. And I don't know why. I must have had some kind of spirit from multiple generations before. But I feel my quality of life, I feel happiest in Japan. I don't know why. I can't tell you why. I just do. Well, I can tell you why, you know, what the things are. But I don't know why it's this. I don't know why it's here. I don't know why it isn't Australia or why it wasn't Germany. I love Germany. I wouldn't be who I am if I didn't have my years in Germany. But there was something, there's something about this place that I feel like this is where I'm supposed to put my roots. And so we came back in July of 2023 and we came with the idea of prototyping. So the idea that we're going to try something and we're going to test it. So it's not something that we have to commit to forever because often, you know, I, I know lots of people that they even want to move it to a new city and, and their partner is like flat no, because it's kind of like that yes or no decisions, right? So rather than saying, why don't we move to the South of Spain for th- the summer just to see if we like it? You know, we don't have to buy a house. We don't have to move our furniture. We don't have to sell the cat. You know, we don't have to do anything like that. Let's just maybe go to the South of Spain and then see how we enjoy it, right? And I think lots of people, when we come to decision-making, we're so conscientious that it, like, it has to be this thing. We have to do it well. So my husband and I don't subscribe to that. And so we said, let's go to Japan and we're going to try for the three months that our tourist visa allows us. We're going to build and try to build our business as much as we possibly can. Now, at that time, we also said, we're also going to have to look at what we also, how we manage Charles because we can't possibly manage. And so I asked my mom, if she would be interested in coming. And because again, you know, Australia, Japan, you know, there's also direct connections, Sydney to Tokyo. It's much kind of easier than having to go all the way around the other world, the side of the world to Mexico. And I asked if she would be interested in, in, in coming and maybe helping us with Charles. She had a, a sickness and she, she kind of got through that. And she was at a kind of at a time in her life that she was maybe ready for that. And she said, yes, I'll come over. Now, I also spoke, obviously, to my husband about this. You know, how do you feel about my mom living with us? Because it's not like, you know, she's going to come to Japan and she's going to get the flat next door. She's going to live with us. She's going to be in the next bedroom. We're going to share a bedroom with Charles. Then my husband, obviously, as, you know, Sarah mentioned, being Mexican, he's very open to, you know, multi-generational households. And he said, yeah, absolutely. Now, I think I was the issue when my mom first arrived. You know, I had to kind of like work through a lot because I hadn't imagined, I hadn't lived with my mom since I was 17 years old. There'd been so much. Was it like trigger central? Was it like oh a minefield? God. Was it like trigger, 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 yes. trigger, trigger, trigger? <laughs> and I mean, I also had to recognize that like my mom didn't know me as a woman. Right. She didn't know me as a married woman with a child. She didn't know that person the same way that my Google didn't know me. <laughs> Very good. My mom didn't know me either. And so I also had to be a little bit more graceful on that front. We're getting to know each other. And I also didn't know my mom as this non-working woman of four kids. I only ever knew my mom working two jobs and, you know, having four kids. I didn't know her as this kind of like leisurely retirement you know, post-menopause woman. Like, I didn't, I didn't know that woman. 
So we actually had to get to know each other again. So we did that. We had some like conversations that my husband, you know, be, you know, being Mexican, he's super comfortable in the in conflict, super comfortable. And so he was able to kind of sit there and he absolutely facilitated a few di- dinner dialogues over <laughs> dinner. But yeah, we got through it so much so that kind of when the when the kind of like the couple eight, I think the eight weeks were up, I said to mom, how do you feel? Would you be interested in kind of coming back? And she said, yeah, I'm going to go home. And she went back for a couple of weeks and she came back again. And then kind of what happened now that we had like a better routine, we had a better model. We kind of have this model now that my mom's kind of with us for eight weeks. She goes back for a couple of weeks and she comes back again. And then of course, you know, we've got to look at how we, how we do that logistically. And because we were able in this three months that we were here in Japan, we were able to connect with the right people to do what Sarah refers to as the science, right? We were able to do the logistics behind. Oh, mate, you're reading my mind. You're reading my mind. I was just, I've got it written down here. Ask about the science. (laughs) We were able to do the science behind what does it look like really for two foreigners and their baby. That's three foreigners. Three foreigners (laughs) to move to Japan, set up a business, Everybody get visas and, you know, and, and, you know, everyone has, you know, Shakai Hoken, all that kind of stuff. Everyone has a social security. What does that look like? Now, that looks different if your spouse is Japanese or then if, let's say, one of you has a working contract in Japan. When you are starting your own business as two foreigners, there is quite a few and there's quite a few requirements. And kind of now I'm kind of through the trauma of it a little bit. I guess I would say... It's not that complicated in terms of what you need. It's very clear what you need. You need an office. You need, you know, 50K in investment. 50K, 50K. Sorry, so like Australian dollars. 50,000 like USD, so about 5 million yen. Yeah, you need five, yeah. So you need 5 million yen. I think it's these days because yen's so weak. I think it's like 35,000 US dollars, something like that. You need that as a, as a startup capital. You need an office. You need a landline. You need two desks and a chair. And I think that's about it. And, I, and you need a Japanese employee. You need an actual Japanese employee, Japanese citizen employee. Once you have those things, like you're kind of fine. But the finding of the office and the setting up of the bank account and all that stuff is just an absolute, it's not something I enjoy. There are people who enjoy it, but that is something I don't enjoy. So in order for me to do what I do best, I knew I had to outsource that as soon as possible. So I found somebody actually who has been with me through this journey and she has done all of the backstage work that you see now. So you mean paperwork and filling in the forms and all that kind of stuff and you just have to sign it at the end of the day or put your stamp on it. That's right. So important to be able to outsource that stuff, isn't it? So this is the science part. I call it the science, but what science means to me is it's either a one or a zero. There's no gray area. It's like... You need a visa if you're not Japanese. You don't maybe need a visa. Yeah. No, no, it's not, you don't. Yeah. It's, it's not a mindset thing, yeah. right? It's not like you need to have the mindset to have a visa. No, no, no. You need to, you need the mind. If you don't have the mindset to do the paperwork, that's a different story, but you have to do the paperwork. So somebody else may need to do that for you. If you can either employ somebody or get somebody to do it as a favor or whatever it is, it's essentials. It's the law. It's your, what kind of insurance do you need or not need? You know, it's not, it's those things that aren't really a choice. It's the things that are logistics. It's the things that are in consensus reality. Whether you agree with them or not, they are consensus reality. So it's not mindset. Yeah, go ahead. 
it's not mindset. And so we sat down and we said, well, what's our ideal life going to look like? What is it going to look like? And so the three of us, so my mom, my husband, also like with, with, with Charles in mind, you know, we kind of like sat down and we kind of, well, originally it was just my husband and I mapping out. And then of course my mom also now kind of living in our ecosystem, you know, we had to include her and say, you know, what, what would life look like for you? You know, and you also have to respect that. And she said, I'm not cooking. I'm not cleaning. Um, and I'm not getting up in the middle of the night. Okay, perfect. So that's your, that's what you need. One thing that I guess my human centered profession has, has set me well for is that firstly, you need to diverge before you converge. Right. And so firstly, it's that listening, right? So when my mom says, I'm not cooking, I'm not cleaning, I'm not getting up in the middle of the night. Well, instead of saying, well, why is that? Instead of, you know, jumping into that, it's no, it's just listen and gather data, gather everybody's needs first. And then look at the patterns because what people are telling you what they need might be a little bit different than if you dig a little bit deeper and you ask yourself, what is behind this need, right? And so we were able to build essentially a, a, a system where my my husband, he's he works at full-time. He has a full-time job. I'm with Charles, obviously, you know, during the night. So I do the night shift because my husband's on the full-time job. And then up until 11 o'clock in the morning. And then I tag team, hand over the childcare button to my mom at 11. And then she eats lunch with Charles that I cook. Because remember, one of my mom's requirements was no cooking. Um, so like she eats lunch that I cook. And then I go to the office. My mom's with Charles. They have lunch. And then she puts him down for his nap. So then he's kind of down for two hours. So my mom is usually, you know, reading or doing crosswords or whatever she wants to do. And then he's up around 2.30, 3 o'clock. And then I get home at 6. So my mom has that kind of like 2 o'clock-ish till three till 6 block, which is usually somewhere between three to three and a half hours that she's with Charles. And then this model is what really works for us. And I think building a model and, you know, you know, I kind of was a little bit, there was lots of obviously thoughts and emotions and kind of perceptions or, or the kind of go into it. Like I thought, well, if I've got an office, I've got to be there at nine o'clock. Well, no, you can't because you also have a child and my husband works full time. So I've got to actually work out what my life looks like. So now I'm very at peace that I don't answer any emails um, until 11 o'clock in the morning. That's the first email that goes out is at 11 o'clock um, and not before then. And that's fine. Lots of unlearning and unschooling and de-schooling yourself, right? Around that stuff. Yeah. And I think it, I think it really just comes down to before, you know, and also even asking myself, you know, when do I want to go to the gym? My son is still 18 months old, so I don't, I don't love getting up, you know, before him. I love to sleep as long as he's sleeping. That's how, when I like to sleep. You know, and there's people that get up at six o'clock and go to the gym. And I thought, oh no, bloody hell, I don't think that's for me. I do it when I come home, right? Before I, you know, walk into the apartment, I usually walk in like very quietly, quickly change into my gym gear, then go downstairs, work out, and then come back upstairs. So I think it's really about being very specific with yourself not just like, oh, generally, you know, I'd like to kind of be more healthy. No, what day do you want to go to the gym at? and at what time that has become really important? So, you know, if I said to my mom, you know, I really want to not only, you know, be Charles's mother, but I also kind of want to be this businesswoman, which was the most stormy, horrendous conflict that I've ever had gone on inside me in my entire life has been like this kind of balance between do I want to be Charles's mom or am I this kind of like international businesswoman? The fact that I can be both, but I'm responsible for building that life and that structure and that day, what that both looks like. 
is really important. And the way that you can do that is you need to be really clear with those around you. So I have to say to my mom, it's really important for me to go to the office. I do not want to be like, I tried the whole, oh, you know, maybe, you know, you see those horrible pictures, like there's a woman working and then there's her child doing some bloody Montessori, Montessori puzzle in the corner. I'm like, that's not my child. My child's a hurricane. That's not it. I can't, you know, focus. You know, when people are saying, you know, you know, working from home's great. Literally the second it turns 11 o'clock, I'm out the door. See you later. I can't wait to get to my office. And so I think just being really honest and being really specific with yourself and like your key stakeholders in your home, whoever they are, I think is really important because that's where you can really get to what the core of everyone's needs are. And once you get to the core of people's needs, that's where the design in your life happens. That's where, you know, for example, my mom spends her mornings on her own. Cause I've also seen kind of friends that have had their moms come over and they've kind of, kind of taking their foot off the brake completely and being like, oh, thank God my mom's here. And they do nothing. And then the mum leaves completely burnt out and never comes back. It's in my long-term interest that my mum keeps on. Oh, I love that. It's in my long-term interest that my mum doesn't burn out. In fact, it's in our long-term, anybody's long-term interest that nobody burns out. And you know, Brittany, I've been very frank about this and I will become even more frank is that I I have burned out so majestically over the past year or so. And um, it's in everybody's interest that that doesn't happen. It really, really, really is. (laughs) The world's better with you in it, Sarah. Oh God. Wow. Okay. Thank you. (laughs) It's better with you in it. And so whatever your day-to-day needs to look like so that you can, you know, show up, that's what we need. Oh, thanks. I feel a bit teary hearing that. <laughs> so anyway, let's move on. Move, quickly move. <laughs> so we talked about the science. So I base my kind of business around science, psychology and spirit or supernatural or the magic or whatever that is. And when you said to me, I don't know what it what, what it is about Japan. I mean, I can list, you said, I can list all the things. So you kind of jumped into consensus reality, like all the things. And then you could probably jump into the psychology and like map what that is about you that fits Japan. But actually at the end of the day, you could do that about Mexico. You could do that about Germany, but it's something in the spirit. It's something in that like unknowable place. And I think that's a really important part of mapping any life out too far into that. And you'll probably get scammed too far into the psychology and you get stuck in what you called overthinking and too far into the consensus reality. And you become too rigid and unable to move or unable to take risk and so on. Taking account of all three of those things is really important. And I think you've illustrated that beautifully. And also this way that you've set your family up, I'm really thinking about that hard right now, even as we speak and being ADHD, I'm able to have about five different channels on at the same time. So, you know, I'm kind of planning something in the background while you're talking about that too. So that's, that's yeah, one of I the great gifts. Impo- I think it's particularly important, especially for for women. And I'm not here to like tell anyone how to live their lives. All I'm here to tell you is that I live my life. Yeah. Cause, cause yeah, cause that works. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, I'm just here to tell you that I live my life in a different way and it's never worked better for me. And one thing particularly, I've even had like a few also like younger women reach out and say, yep, yeah, I'm, I'm a bit nervous about what that looks like financially for me. If I'm to take time off from my business, I don't know why. Oh, there's a few things that maybe, you know, I could put it down to, but at the end of the day, my business has never been stronger financially than I have since I've had Charles. I've had bigger projects. I've had 
bigger paydays since having Charles than beforehand. And I used to work night and day on my business. And now I work on my business from 11 till 5.30. And uh, you have very clear boundaries around that as well, because I texted you this morning just because I want, because I'd asked you very quickly to, to do this recording, but you were like, I'm in mom mode. And I was like, get off the phone. <laughs> yeah, mom mode, but I will do it in an hour. You know, so I do show yeah, up. Yeah, but I, I, like, I was just like, oh yeah, that's right. Then I was questioning myself saying like, I know she doesn't start till 11, but also I felt like I needed to say to you, don't worry, there's no hurry on everything because <laughs> so there's this kind of really interesting kind of thing that goes on. But at the end of the day, we have to uphold our own boundaries around people because there's always going to be people like me who are like, oh, just a bit. And you have to do it. You have to, you have to, have to, have to, have to have that, that chutzpah or that, you just have to be able to take the risk to say, nah not game on right now. Love it. Love it. Yeah. but I, Yeah. Cause I think it's, yes, it is boundaries. Yes. It's all those things, but I also think there's, there's no malice. It's also for me to tell you very clearly when you can count on me, you know, you can count on me in an hour from now, you know, that's when you can count on me. So I don't even think it's always about like, you know, hold this space because toxic people are going to come and eat your time. Oh, I don't, I'm so happy you've said that. I don't feel like that at all. I feel like, oh, this is also, you know, and there's there's little things that you can also do, whether it's like setting out of offices. You know what? That's something I actually might do because I haven't done it. It's like setting out like an out of office. Maybe you can have like a like an automate that. That's the other thing. In order for you to like set up your your life, try to automate it like as much as possible. So I'm just literally thinking, I think after I get off this podcast, what I'm going to do is I'm going to set like an out of office each day until 11 o'clock and say, my my day will begin at 11. So you will hear from me then. And it's just about being open with people, what they can expect from you. I really like that you've said that about like toxic people will invade your space. It's like, girl, if I'm in tidying up my office and I think, oh, I'd better just tell that person that there's no hurry on this thing and I'm going to do it now, right? That's not toxic. No, because also maybe, <laughs> maybe your morning, you're in like super productivity mode I don't know like kind of like your yeah. your phases so because you've just got to let people know maybe like you know there are some people that are like their 6 a.m till 9 a.m is their absolute power time and they're like pumping out emails they're pumping out content I mean go for it but I won't get back to you till 11 and no worries about that either yeah and you know it's talking about that urgency thing as well isn't it I'm thinking about the urgency of the people on the streets of Mexico. There yes. was an urgency for them to pivot. But also, I have to keep reminding myself, you know, we're not delivering a liver across town, right? Somebody's not waiting for a liver across town. We are business people. Yes. We are coaches. We are facilitators. We're business builders. That is. And the other thing about Mexico, nobody was, like, feeling bad about it. No, it wasn't like there was this, like, depression or, like, cloud over the country. People were still like living their lives. You, I mean, it was, they, they weren't allowed, but I mean, they were still having barbecues. You would still hear people singing karaoke on a Saturday night. People were just like, you know, as much as you can be going through a really tough time, it doesn't mean that you have to be sad about it. Like if you think about also being in, because I'm leaning into this because of your experience in grief, but the Mexican Day of the Dead is a celebration do you know about Day of the Dead? The Dia de los Muertos, sí. Yes. Well, I, I do, yeah. And also I come from a Catholic background, so I'm aware of kind of All Souls Day and uh, Halloween and so on. Yeah. It is a 
joyful day. And what you do is you go and you pick up, you know, like a picnic or something, and you go with your family to the cemetery and you have a picnic at the cemetery, which in in any other kind of like normal construct, you would think these people are out of their minds. Well, yeah, the, the Anglo-Saxon way would be like, that's really macabre or something like that. Like, I don't feel that at all, but go ahead. People just really enjoy it. And I kind of also, also kind of recognize that there's also like a very strange connection between poorer countries and exceptional food, like whether it's Thailand, Vietnam, India, Mexico, there's this like, I don't know what it is, but there's this very kind of strange connection because it's like, you know, look, we're suffering, if suffering's around us, but I'm not eating shit food. You know, I'm not eating potatoes for dinner. <laughs> Well, it could also be because capitalism hasn't touched those countries quite as hard yet. So there's no food industry. It's like what you farm, what you what what grows near you is what you eat, and then you make the the very, 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 very best of that. So there's there's that as well. Yeah, it's um, true. And, which, so, and that's what I was just saying, like about the like the Mexico thing, like as you mentioned, kind of Anglo-Saxon cultures were like, oh, my business has gone to nothing. And oh my goodness, everyone's so depressed, everyone's so sad. Everything happened in Mexico, but people just didn't feel like that. They just chose not to. They struggled and it was terrible. And, you know, people were like pinch of COVID. And people, they didn't like it either. But somehow people pivoted their business in order to do something useful in order to feed their families. And in the process of feeding their families, they also were eating good food and enjoying the company of others because as you know Mexicans live in multi-generational households sometimes there's you know there's aunties there's uncles there's cousins sometimes there's 10 people living in a house so social distancing maybe if you're social distancing but if you know your cousin is going to school or your cousin is working at a factory or something I mean they're coming home whatever they bought you know it's coming home to you as well it it gives you pause for thought right Mm. thanks for sharing that kind of cross-cultural stories there in the day of the dead and yeah, and I think Japan does death pretty well as well, actually. Yeah, Oban. It's very, very Oban. Special. And just in day-to-day life as well, the Sudan in the houses, that's the um, small altars that people have in the houses and talking to the relatives and honouring them. And just there's so many rituals. My my husband's family is a countryside family, so the rituals are ever more present in the, you know, those kind of superstitions and stuff. But I get it. Like I can remember when my husband turned 37 and he was given this knife and, oh no, I think the first one was these massive chopsticks all wrapped up. And the idea was that these chopsticks, you put them for a year, you put them by your bedside and they're supposed to come in and pick out all the diseases from inside you. But to me, that's also a kind of reflection of like, at this stage in your life, this is what starts to happen. And when we lose these rituals, you start to kind of forget and think you're supposed to be immortal. And 37, maybe you start getting some cancers, just start to be more present or liver or whatever it is. Everything starts to be a bit more worn out. And it's just a reminder, right? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And it's and 37 is that's the reason that's the date is because that, that that 37 I was actually having this conversation a couple of weeks ago with someone that was had was writing on buddhism and said the reason that it's cho- that 37 is chosen is because that's the that's exactly the age where you go i've got to you know pick it up i've got to you know kind of like pick it up again i've got to work more i've got to make sure i provide for my family because that's kind of when you start seeing 
maybe your parents have either died, start dying or being around you. You start recognizing you, your, you start seeing your own mortality. And rather than kind of taking care of yourself, what you do is you want to go up a gear. So it tells you go down. That's so interesting. And Mike, yeah, super. Mile Barchan, who's now 95, used to always say that to Case Gay, my husband. Tell Sarah not to work too hard. She's working herself too hard. She's too working too hard. I always have the program running that I don't work hard enough. Kel Surprise, you know, <laughs> uh, no surprises there. And I also, this really is breaking a memory for me. When I used to work at Microsoft and I was coaching one of the HR directors there, and I said, I asked him a question, like, what's the biggest challenge you see for the people in your, in the, in the organization? He said, when people turn 38, they stop learning. And I think I was about 30. I was, I was before that or around that age, maybe 37 at that time. And I was like, what do you mean? Like, what, like, okay. And it really stuck with me. I thought, well, that's a weird thing to say. And I, so I always try to remain flexible based on that, but also recognize that there's some truth to that. And it's that kind of thing around 37. And the fact that Case Case parents came down to see us and delivered these chopsticks to us. And then a couple of years later, this knife, which again is supposed to be something to cut out something or to cut through something, is like, but it in that regard, it's of course, you go to the temple or the shrine to get these things blessed and to get them wrapped and to get them chanted over but it's taken care of within the community it's not a top-down thing it's a bottom-up thing and so many things are in japan or or in other countries like maybe like mexico as well where the the community itself is taking care of these things i don't know i mean this is not a hard and fast thing i'm just and it's not a, x is better than y or anything like that or this culture is better than that culture it's just something that i'm musing on very very hard at the moment as i kind of yeah, and no, absolutely. Especially when it comes to either like births and deaths. So one thing, for example, that, you know, you have this joy that Mexicans have around death. You won't find many daycares in Mexico. There's not many. There just are not many daycares. Like, where do all the kids, where all the kids go? I mean, there are some, but it's still the idea that it's, it's the village it's the aunties, it's the, it's the, it's the grandparents that are not long, longer working anymore because there's this unsaid agreement that I will stop working outside the home as you begin working outside the home and I will work in the home as the grandparent and I will take care of the children and in return you take care of me. It's cyclic everything, you know. And one thing that I have found that, so I don't know why I'm telling you this, it doesn't, somehow not related to the podcast, sorry. No, no, please. One thing I found just astonishing in Mexico was how generous the poor people are of their money. Mm -hmm. I thought, why it's this person? And they don't, sorry, they they don't just give away like five bucks. They'll they'll spend a hundred dollars or something like on a present for something or for someone. This is huge money for this person. This is this is huge money for this person. And I said to my husband, why are they spending this money? And he said, it's an investment that if something ever happens to them, that kind of, and they don't do it in, in a way like, oh, no, it's not transactional. It's, it's not spiritual. transactional. Yeah. It's a spiritual thing. It's kind of like they're paying into the Reciprocal. community. Yeah. Yes. Ooh. And uh, that for me was absolutely astonishing, just how financially generous the poor people in Mexico were or are. 
and don't ever hold back on something that bubbles up because, I mean, we're going to close out now, but don't hold back on something like that because that's so important what you just said there, that it's inside the community and there's that sense of, I feel so sad sometimes because I just feel like a commodity sometimes. And I don't want to feel like a commodity that once I've stopped being useful to you, you just drop me. I want to feel like a, a functioning part and the transaction is that I offer this for this money. I don't know how to describe it. I don't just mean me either. I'm looking, when I say me, I mean it in a kind of community sense. As so a person, yeah. It's really, really, it's something that's on my mind and all these little stories that you're telling about all the different places that you've worked and how you've set up your life here, which is so interesting, are, are little breadcrumbs for me and perhaps our listeners to pick up along the way. So with that, I want to ask my final question, which is there are many ways to lead a life. What does that mean to you? That is a great question. It's a great ended question. For me, leading a life should be leading your life. And I think we're very quick to get to the solution of what does this look like? What will I be doing? Shall the program, shall the coaching program be 10 weeks or shall it be four weeks? Or shall I charge this? Or shall I charge that? Or should I live here or there? Rather than taking a minute and really sitting down, being vulnerable, being open without, with the person we share our life with, whoever that is for you, and mapping out what your life might look like. What might you like it to look like? What would you like to include in your life? to dig a little bit deeper into your into your needs, to be open and to be okay with the fact that maybe what you need in your life might seem trivial to somebody else. But for you, it's actually something that brings a lot of joy. Like I'll give you an example. When I lived in, in Mexico, one thing that I really struggled with was that the closest place I could get a coffee was a 25-minute drive away. For me, when I wake up in the morning now, I live in Yokohama and my favorite cafe in the world is a five-minute walk or 10 minutes if I'm walking with, with Charles and he doesn't want to be in the pram. It's a walk away. It is a joy. It's a joy. And when you start doubting yourselves in those little moments, I don't really need a coffee. I don't really need to be near a tennis court. When you start doubting yourself in the little moments, how do you ever possibly think that you can trust yourself in the big moments if you haven't allowed yourself to feel a little bit of joy over knowing that it's important for you to have a coffee in the morning? or that it's important for you to live close to transit or whatever it is that's important to you. If you don't trust yourself and if you don't allow or hold space for yourself with little things, you will never hold space for yourself with a big thing. You will never say, you know what, I am going to do that thing with my husband or we are, we are going to start that coffee shop or we are going to move to wherever. You'll never do it. So living a life for me comes back down to on a day-to-day and something that I like to call the 1%. So and for me, the 1% is instead of waiting for your dream to be 100% perfect and perfect and to get started, how can you live 1% of that today? And for me, when I was in Mexico and I was at home breastfeeding my child for hours and hours and end thinking, I think I've lost everything. I think I've lost my business. I think this is it. I think this is who I am now. For me, some something as ridiculous as putting on the TV while I was breastfeeding my son and watching a show, watching an interview on YouTube in Japanese was the way that I could connect to that self in that minute. And it was just something very simple. So rather, you know, thinking about your life as this huge chunk that, you know, has to be right or wrong, try to break it up into moments and think, how can I find joy in that moment? And again, trust yourself 
in what brings you joy. Because if you trust those small joys, you'll find space and you'll develop a muscle of allowing joy in your life. And that one day when something big, when a big decision does come across your path, because we all get hit with those big decisions in our lives. It's not every day, but, you know, we, we usually get, you know, something like probably 10 really big decisions in our lives, the big ones, not like the semi-big ones. I mean, the really big ones. And then you would have worked out that muscle enough that you'll be strong enough to make a decision that's actually really meaningful to you. So I guess for me, living a life is that not forgetting life isn't this kind of one big chunk. It's the small moments and to hold space and to build that joy muscle because otherwise you you just, and when I say you, I'm actually speaking to myself. If I don't build that joy muscle, allowing myself the little things that I enjoy, I don't, I'm not prepared or capable yeah, I'm not capable of making the big decision. So I guess for me, that's what living a life is. Right. So that 1% towards the things that you want. So you've got the joy muscle built up so that when the big decisions come, you're better capable and prepared of being able to actually do them because the action's been taken little by little. I love that. I've really enjoyed listening to the way that you've designed your life out here, um, Brittany. I almost called you Tiffany then because you put that into, sowed that seed into my brain earlier. <laughs> I was telling Sarah, I always get confused with a Tiffany. Tiffany or Stephanie or Brittany. I'll, I'll go with all three. Whatever I get, I'm fine. I'm fine. Whatever. No, Brittany. Um, it's just been really interesting to hear how you've designed your life in a way that kind of draws on all the different experiences that you've had in your life where, you know, your auntie and uncle looked after you when you were little and you were like the, the, the boss of the family, the kid, the boss of the family kids. And then you're kind of drawing in on your Mexican side and, and drawing in on the Japanese culture as well. And then designing and building that out for your family, looking after all the things that need looking after, and then kind of doggedly moving towards them and ha having other people come in to do the bits that you're not that good at. So that, you know, the logistics and the paperwork and, and making sure that you're able to move towards what you want in a way that's, you know, lawful and delicious and spiritually fulfilling as well as fulfilling a need of that value of service that you have where you're serving people in the, in the business world and helping them to design for themselves as well. So it's been a real treat to listen to all of this, Brittany. It's been beyond my expectations. It's always it's always fun interviewing podcasters because they're so everybody's very generous, but there's just something so unbelievably generous about like podcasters because they're just like, well, how much can I give here? How much can I give? Because they're on the other side of the microphone. Yeah, well, I knew like yeah, I know this is the place for TMI, so I just thought I'm gonna ah, I'm gonna it's I'm, the TMI I'm here. It's or as the I like to call it MI. <laughs> I call it MI. Much information, most information. Yeah, not TMI. <laughs> Where can we find you? So you can find me really um, on, on LinkedIn under my name, Brittany Arthur. All of my social is underscore Brittany Arthur. Underscore Brittany Arthur, B-R-I-T-T-A-N-Y Arthur. And then, of course, Business Karaoke Podcast. You can Google that. Um, and then you'll see in an upcoming episode, you'll see us featuring the the, the wonderful host that we have today, Sarah Furuya. Oh! You will come join us <laughs> because, I mean, if there's anyone that has an innovation story to tell in Japan, it's you. So I'll be looking forward to welcoming you on the podcast soon too. Amazing. Thank you so much, Brittany. And thank you everybody for listening. If you found something interesting here today, just um, drop it into the comments or, you know, get in touch with me if you want any coaching and get in touch with Brittany if you want any kind of human design thinking work done. 
And thank you so much for listening. It's been an absolute treat. Have a good day. Thank you so much for listening to these creative musings and stories of reinvention. And if it's Guests Week, big love and gratitude to our guests. Go follow them everywhere. Shout out to Laura Marashima for her podcast management and support. I would love if you would follow and subscribe this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and share with a friend you think would love or benefit from it. You can also find me at Sarah Brewer Creative on Facebook and Instagram and get on my occasional, very occasional newsletter list at sarahbrewer.com. I just love that you're here and I'll catch you the next time on the Legends Podcast. Rise like a phoenix, baby. And don't forget to take other people with you. Bye.